to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. All right, so Tim, you had the interview this week with David Cohen, who is the CEO of IAB. And I guess my first question going into this is, what role does the IAB play in the industry? Because I feel like it's a very expansive organization. Yeah, that's basically how we open up the conversation, because I think as much as a lot of folks are familiar with the IAB, IAB is like almost such a fixture that it can be kind of like hard to get a beat on like what its role really is. And so it's been a good amount of the conversation talking about that, especially since, you know, the IABs expanded beyond, you know, originally it was really very much focused on publishers and ad tech companies. And since, you know, then it's broadened where its membership also includes brands and agencies. And so I asked David, like, how the IAB is kind of able to manage having a membership base that spans both the buy and the sell sides because, you know, typically you think of trade groups as representing their constituents and kind of advocating for their constituents, but it can be hard for the IAB to take any kind of position like that when its constituents are basically everyone. Um, So we get into that and he talks about how there are councils within IAB dedicated to publishers and to brands and agencies that kind of give them uh, you know voice within the organization but I think it is still um, you know IAB is different than other organizations like the Association of National Advertisers or the 4As or the VAB which represents TV networks and that the IAB is trying to represent everyone got it okay so I also know that they're changing their standard terms and conditions next year. Did you guys talk at all about what that will mean for the different players in the space? Yeah. So uh, David mentions that during the conversation that they uh, started you know, putting out a survey this year to update the terms and conditions and to kick off that process next year. Um, IAB had originally been planning to do that like in 2021, um, he had told me that they were planning to do that in 2022. So it seems like a um, slower process, but it's also a pretty big process. The last time IAB updated its terms and conditions was uh, 2010. So it's you know been more than a decade since then. And he said it'll be a, a two-year process. So not something that'll be finalized next year, potentially 2024 timeframe. Great. Well, I'll let you guys get into it. Thanks, Tim. David Cohn, welcome to the DJ Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Tim. Good to be here. So I want to you know, talk to you about the state of the industry, the expectations heading into 2023. But where I want to start is you know, just talking about the role of the IAB in the industry, especially IAB has been around for decades at this point, but its membership has grown, um, especially in recent years. Historically, IAB had been focused on publishers and ad tech companies, and then tech platforms got added to the mix. Brands got added to the mix uh, as members, agencies, and I think most recently retail media networks. And so I'm curious, like that seems to position IAB a bit differently than other trade organizations like the VAB, which is representing TV networks, or the ANA, which is representing advertisers, 4As, which is representing agencies. It seems like the IAB is trying to represent everyone. So that's a very good characterization. We, we call it uh, the big tent. Uh, which is exactly a manifestation of what you just said. And uh, yes, created in 1996, um, really focused on the publisher community, first and foremost, ad tech platforms, 
uh, brands and agencies on top of that. Uh, our, our belief and one of the reasons why I joined IAB is that some of the the challenges that we have as an industry today require that big tent to come to the table. It's not us versus them, buyer versus seller. Uh, it's a collective discussion uh, that's necessary. So uh, there, are, I can't think of another at scale uh, trade association that is a big tent as IAB, um, and, and we view that as a as a real point of differentiation uh, in the space. That's not to say that. Uh, warrior type trade associations like the 4As or the ANA or the VAB don't serve a purpose. They certainly do. They have constituents that they represent. Uh, we represent the entire uh, digital industry. Um, and uh, that's what we're focused on. Got it. And how do you kind of then serve that position when you're trying to service everyone, effectively everyone across the industry? And because then well, I know because of conversations that we have at our events and that you know I just have privately with people, there are constituents like publishers, for example, who feel like they're not getting equal say um, and that are you know getting pushed you know to the backseat to I think in particular you know tech platforms, I think even more particular the Googles of the world. And I imagine that may be continuing to be the case with retail media networks becoming part of the IAB. So how do you respond to those complaints from publishers that their voices aren't being given equal value, they aren't having equal say in things uh, in terms of the IAB? I'll, uh, I'll give you two data points. Uh, data point number one is we do an annual member survey. Um, I think the last one, we had 863 members who responded. And we ask for, we ask the hard questions. Uh, are we doing a good job? What could we be doing differently? Are your voices heard? What's the health of the digital uh, ecosystem and industry? And I will tell you that w while there might be um, kind of individuals that might feel the way that you're expressing, uh, that's not the that's not the sentiment of the industry. Um, you know, that's one of the the blessings and the curses of my job is to try to maintain um, value for every part of the ecosystem uh, and making sure that everyone feels their voice is being heard. The, the second thing I'll say is that when I joined IAB, which in March will be three years, uh, time flies when you're having fun, I suppose. Uh, I heard two things. Uh, I heard number one that the IAB is can't be all things to all people. Um, and number two, I heard that IAB is in the pocket of uh, Google and Facebook. Uh, at that time, it was Facebook. Uh, and I will tell you, it's obviously slightly disingenuous coming from me, but um, as I've been in the role now for three years, I could tell you nothing is further from the truth. Um, we try to have equal representation across the ecosystem. It's not always easy, I will tell you. We have some uh, meetings that are quite animated and quite tense. And there was times when there was disagreements. Our goal is to try to come to a common ground. And uh, in, in most cases, I can't think of one that we haven't. Uh, we do come to that common ground. That said, I'll just add one more data point. There are situations that will kind of necessitate having forums that are just for a particular group. So as an example, we have a publisher council uh, a publisher council is exactly what it sounds like. We do not invite ad tech. We do not invite platforms. We do not invite agencies. We do not invite brands. It is for publishers to talk among themselves 
about the things that are important to them, peers learning from one another in a non-competitive way. We have an agency council, we have a brand council, we have these individual peer communities that serve uh, some of the purpose that you're suggesting in that, um, how are their voices heard? The, the, the magic really happens, and then I'll take a breath and ask for your next question, when we bring some of those two things together. So as an example, we have a CRO council, Chief Revenue Officer Council, meets every other week, led by Cheryl Goldstein. We have an agency leadership council that I lead every other week. And then once a quarter, we bring those two things together to meet as a group. And I will tell you, it's some of the most magical moments at IAB. Cheryl and I sit back and look and say, this is why the IAB exists, because of the conversations that happen uh, in those forums. So we try to be uh, important to individual communities, and we try to be uh, important to the industry as a whole. Got it. Okay. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you mentioned, you know, some, there are other, you know, trade organizations that are more like, you know, warrior organizations. IAB is more focused on collaboration, but it does sound like there are subgroups within IAB that could be described as warrior organizations for the specific uh, member categories. Yeah. So, and, and warrior organizations, that's not my coining. Someone else coined it. I don't recall who it was, but that they're, two different types of trade associations, one that are singularly focused with a single kind of constituent group. And there are others that are uh, as IAB is, which is kind of cross industry. Um, and yeah, of course, we, we, we do have within the big tent, there are different areas within that tent that could be just for folks that are just like you. Um, so I'd like to think it's the best of both worlds. Got it. And then there's IAB, there's IAB Europe, which is a completely separate organization focused in Europe. And then there's IAB Tech Lab. IAB and IAB Tech Lab, like I know, because I've gotten the feedback on articles, IAB and IAB Tech Lab are not the same organization. There's the confusion of, well, they both have IAB. What is the relationship between IAB and IAB Tech Lab? Can you kind of lay that out for me once and for all, and hopefully it sticks in my head? Sure. Uh, well, the simple answer is they are two totally separate organizations with separate boards of directors that govern um, their activities. Uh, so that's the simple answer. Now, the more complicated answer is IAB Tech Lab was created by IAB. Uh, IAB maintains roles on the board. Uh, and obviously, um, we believe that one plus one equals three, that the activities of IAB Tech Lab and IAB, when coordinated in a collaborative way, become a very powerful force in the industry. We like to think about it as IAB is the business requirements side of the equation, and Tech Lab is the uh, global technical standards setting side of the equation. There are notable differences also. IAB is a US-centric organization, although we do have um, entities around the world. And Tech Lab, by design, is a global organization. So, um, But they are two totally separate and distinct. Tony Katzer is the CEO of the Tech Lab. Um, the relationship is IAB does sit on uh, the executive committee for uh, Tech Lab, and we both believe that our uh, coordination and collaboration makes us both better. Um, so hopefully that that puts an end to any of your uh, questions. <laughs> I have plenty of questions. Um, question on that one. So I understand IAB Tech Lab handles technical standards. You mentioned IAB handles business requirements. What do you mean by that? Can you lay that one out for me? 
Yeah. So um, a, a good example is what's going on in the uh, advanced television space or CTV space today. Um, you can come up with a technical requirement for a video watermark, as an example. But if it's not built to the needs of the industry, what are we trying to solve for is a simple way to say it. So are we trying to solve for frequency capping, billing reconciliation, uh, measurement and attribution? You know, what are the use cases that uh, Tech Lab needs to develop specifications for? Uh, we would source that from um, the relationships that IAB holds, chief investment officers, chief digital officers, brands, etc. And then TechLab would develop a solution based on uh, the requirements that we would uh, we would create. It's not quite as cut and dry as that. Obviously, TechLab does maintain uh, business side relationships, but that is the the yin and the yang. Uh, we are not a global technical standard setting body. We did not create the IAB that is create the Open RTB spec, the VAST spec, the ads.txt spec. Those are all. Tech lab creations um, that are solving problems that have been surfaced um, on the IAB side. Got it. And then IAB does things like I think you know the one standard that you all have on the business requirements side that I think about the most. I talk with people about the most is when it comes to um, guaranteed you know media buys. You know specifically the. 14-day 100% cancellation option, which was a big focal point in 2020, soon after you joined, I imagine, was a big focal point for you when you were at UM of, you know, under the IAB terms, you know, business terms for deals and advertisers should be able to cancel 100% of a buy as long as they do so 14 days out before the campaign was slated to run. And where that has become a fun for me to cover, not so fun for people who are actually in the mix to deal with. Um, gray area has been when it comes to the upfront and TV network streaming and digital video inventory um, because advertisers want greater flexibility. And so they, they want more of that, more TV networks for at least their streaming and digital video inventory to adhere to that IAB standard of 14 days, 100% out. Typically, and even increasingly, the TV network owners for their streaming and digital video inventory have been going the other way and applying their linear cancellation terms, which can be anywhere from 30 to 60 days out um, cancellation and not 100%, but more like 20 to 30 to maybe 50% at the high end. What To what extent can IB be requiring companies to adhere to its terms, to enforce its terms in this you know, situation. We'll use this you know, example. So you raise a very timely topic, uh, industry standard terms and conditions, which is um, designed to reduce friction between buy side and sell side so that every time you go to the market, you don't have to negotiate over all the kind of individual items, payment terms, cancellation options, et cetera, data usage. Um, it's time for a refresh. Uh, so in fact, in 2023, we just, we started this year with a survey to the industry. What are the things that need to be changed? What are the things that need to be fixed? What should we focus on? We are starting a uh, endeavor in 2023 to redo uh, the terms and conditions 
Uh, I believe we're at 3.0, so our next iteration of what that looks like. And one of the things that's been highlighted, as you right, rightly indicate, is some of the upfront terms and uh, T's and C's are not necessarily aligned. So we are going to be tackling that. Um, this is uh, going to probably be a two-year effort. Uh, I was part of the uh, TNC uh, 3.0, and uh, I had a full head of hair before that started. So it is a uh, it's a pretty gnarly process, um, one that we work with other. We worked with the forays and the ANA, I believe, uh, the last time around, which we intend to do the same. It is a uh, this is really a an ecosystem play. Uh, and our goal, we can't mandate anyone does anything. Uh, what we can do is we can come to the market after sourcing requirements from the industry. This is what we believe to be a best practice. And as that has happened in the past, that that becomes a de facto standard. Uh, the T's and C's as it currently stands, while they haven't been updated in a long time, still predominate uh, digital buys today uh, because it was helpful in reducing the uh, argumentative nature of kind of the buy side, sell side negotiation. And we're hopeful that we can improve it next year or, or 2024, which is when we're hoping to release it. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back. So as you mentioned, you can't mandate adoption of IB's terms and conditions. Can you do anything to incentivize it? Because it, it seems like TV networks have largely looked at those terms and conditions and said, oh, that's nice for the digital companies, but no, we're not going to be adopting those. No, I don't think that's our role. You know, our, our role is to uh, offer uh, offer the industry a, a best practice uh, and hopefully the industry adopts it. Um, we don't incentivize we can illuminate who has adopted standards. So as an example, on the, uh, on the tech lab side of the equation, on the Ivy Tech Lab, they have something called Transparency Center, uh, which allows you to go in and look at a variety of different players and have they adopted uh, ads.txt, have they done it correctly? So that there's a way of seeing who has adopted what standards that have been issued, but you know, we're, uh, we're not uh, incentivizing or bribing, we're simply providing a uh, a view into what we believe to be the best uh, the best terms in the industry based on what we've heard from both sides, uh, and hopefully um, those get adopted. Got it. And you mentioned you know you'll be in this process of updating the terms and conditions overall. This you know these terms around cancellation is that going to be updated? It, it's on the table for consideration. Yes. Okay. Why would it even be on the table? Because it seems like, you know, a lot of folks like it. Well, I mean, I think when you're looking at uh, revisiting a document that's, I believe, a decade old, you'd want to take a look at all the different components of it. I'm not going to I'm not suggesting that they're going to change, uh, but we have to do due, due diligence, right? We have to hear from the, the sellers. Is this working for you? We have to hear from the buyers. Is it working for them? If it's working for neither Clearly, that needs to be put on the table for consideration. So at this point, we're, we just did a survey. We're analyzing the results of the survey. We're kicking off the project in earnest in Q1. Uh, and I think just realistically, it's going to be more than a year to get this done. So uh, it will be a 2023-24 initiative. Okay. Do you think it'll be done in time for the 2024-25 upfront cycle? So basically, like the upfront negotiations, negotiations that'll be taking place summer of 24? Uh, I always find that predicting the future is a notoriously tricky business, Tim. But yes, that is the hope. Okay. Um, it, one of the reasons I ask is it feels like the 24 upfront cycle is going to be 
a hell of an upfront cycle because potentially there's new IAB terms and conditions at that point. There's also like, I think that's going to be the first one where Nielsen one is really going to be in market. It feels like that'll be the first year where VideoAmp, Comscore, iSpot and the others will be really compete. Like that feels like 2024 is going to be the year when the measurement currency changeover really happens. Um, I don't think it's going to be so much the case next year as 2024. So I'm just, I'm more thinking like, God, how big is the 20 or how seismic potentially is the 2024 upfront cycle going to be? Well, it's funny that you say that. Um, We are working with uh, a number of players on the buy side um, to try to kind of create some order out of the chaos that could potentially ensue on the currency side of the equation. So important to say, Currency and measurement are not the same thing. Um, you know, if we just t- focus on what is the agreed upon transactional currency between buyer and seller, historically, it's been very simple. It's been Nielsen in the video space. Um, and now, as you uh, rightfully mentioned, there's lots of other players that are coming into the fore. It is our hope that we can get the industry to align around a handful. Uh, we threw out two to three as a good, uh, reasonable number. Um, of currencies that are acceptable in the marketplace. Now, once again, that's not ours to decide, but from what we have heard on the agency side, it will be absolute pandemonium if we have a dozen different currencies, impossible to manage the business. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out what are the things that are most important for the industry, what are the the mandatories, what are the nice tabs, and hopefully we can align around two to three. We're, We're hoping actually to have some initial guidance for next year's Uh, upfront cycle, so we don't have to wait till 2024. Uh, Industry best practices for uh, currencies in the video uh, landscape. You you might see a recurring theme. We just also are issuing a a survey uh, today. Actually, I just reviewed it over the weekend uh, to a number of the the buy side folks uh, to see what's important. Uh, And then we're going to call them together uh, with the hopes that we get an initial uh, discussion. The, The goal is if there's 100% of the world and we can get 80% of agreement on what's important, that's a win, right? You can keep the 20% for your individual proprietary advantage and all that kind of fun stuff. But if we can agree on the 80%, that would be a great step forward. Right. And what do you see or expect to be seeing in terms of like what those best practices on the measurement front will look like? Like even just this morning, there was an agency exec I was talking to and, and they were talking about just in video, like take traditional TV out of it, just CTV, connected TV, social video, digital video, you know, so like online video, YouTube, et cetera. There's like complete fragmentation with when it comes to measurement. What are the metrics? Where, you know, are they available? What, how... What is IAB doing to bring that together? How do you expect that to be coming together with those best practices next year? Well, that's exactly the question. So we have uh, panel-based sourcing. We have census-based sourcing. We have what is an impression counted as? Is it is it continuous seconds? Is it cumulative seconds? I mean, it's it's all over the map. Now, MRC has issued guidance on kind of two continuous seconds as an example, but not everyone is adopting that. So things like that, um, uh, what's the role of ACR uh, in all of this, uh, if at all? Uh, Our belief is that ACR, while today everyone does it differently, everyone has their own version of uh, of ACR data, 
Uh, our belief is that as time uh, continues on, ACR will be viewed potentially as another form of fingerprinting, which will be kind of sub- uh, you know subject to the same privacy review that uh, is happening in uh, Washington or or legislative review. So that might not be a long-term viable uh, solution. So what qualifies as an impression? How are we counting in a similar way across television, social video, uh, online video, et cetera, because it's not exactly the same. Uh, And I think that's kind of, you can't figure out all the other stuff until you land the plane on that. So we're trying to just determine what is counting the same way look like? What are the things that we need to be thinking about? And we're bringing folks together um, in the next two weeks, I believe, to start a conversation there. If we find, I mean, you've been around this business long enough to know that we've been talking about measurement for as soon as soon as I got in the business, we've been talking about. So if this becomes highly contentious, uh, it's going to continue to take a a very long time. We're trying to find take measurement and value out of the equation. All we're looking to do is quantify and concretize. How are we counting impressions in a similar way across video channels? And that's step number one. And it feels like even step you know, 0.1 or maybe step zero could be like counting impressions at the individual level or the household level. Like totally, that's one of the questions. Yes. Okay. Like, does that need to get tackled before anything else gets tackled? That is part of the, that is part of our survey. That's part of the same question. Should it be individual? Should it be household? Is it co-viewing? How do we view co-viewing or don't we? So all those kinds of questions are exactly part of the the counting paradigm, which is what we're trying to crack. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Because then there's also like um, you all, you know, IAB put out its 2023 outlook uh, in November. And, you know, one of the pieces to that was you all surveyed uh, brand agency execs and others about, you know, buy side focuses. And I think measurement was at the top of the list, but second was marketing mixed modeling, which I kind of read into as planning, like planning just... I don't remember a year I've been covering this stuff for over a decade now. I don't remember talking as much about planning with people as I have this year, especially on the digital and CTV side of things. How does, you know, planning's role in advertising change in 2023? Are you expecting? Oh, it's a great question. Um, There are two things that I don't think we spend enough time talking about. Uh, Strategy and planning is one and creative is the other. Uh, We spend an inordinate amount of time. Once the budgets have been allocated, you get a piece, you get a piece, maximizing what happens within that budget allocation. But in order to determine what the budget allocation is, many large advertisers rely upon market mix modeling um, to determine that. And market mix models inputs are impressions and cost generally. And if you're counting impressions and cost in a different way across, let's say, digital and traditional channels, right off the bat, uh, we have an issue uh, because as an example, in digital, we look at viewable impressions. In linear television, we look at opportunity to see. Um, Those two things get added together, and that's not a fair um, kind of addition. So uh, another thing that we're tackling, and this is one that we're going to be focused on at our annual leadership meeting uh, in January um, in Florida is around attention. Uh, so you haven't mentioned that yet, but attention is another dimension or dynamic um, because there are we now have the ability to have a similar 
way of looking at attention across screens. Is someone's eyes on screen? Is someone in the room? Is it viewable as we have looked at other channels in digital? That's another input into market mix models. But once the budget is allocated after the kind of strategy and planning phase is done, you have limited ability to kind of make macro changes. Uh, so I think that um, connecting the planning and execution systems is one thing that the industry has spent the past couple of years working on, but it's a big, still, I think, largely missing piece. Got it. And so that, can you help me to then also understand, you mentioned like, you know, once the budget is allocated, it's hard to make those big macro changes. Another big takeaway for me from the outlook was uh, the bit about, you know, there's going to be more frequent reforecasting among buyers that, you know, I think most of the respondents said they're planning to reforecast they're spending on a monthly basis, which seems really frequent. What are the implications of that? Yeah, so I think the days of the uh, the yearly plan, I wouldn't say are over, but they're, uh, their days are numbered. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic definitely um, brought into focus the need for flexibility and agility and the ability to kind of move dollars around. Now, we have the good fortune in the industry of having many companies who have lots of different assets. So you can actually make a commitment with a media conglomerate and move money around from digital to linear, linear to something else. It's when you think about things like entirely uh, other channels like out of home or radio or print or those, those things are harder to kind of move from one place to the other once you've made a commitment to an individual uh, company. So um, I, I think that uh, reforecasting, flexibility was the F word that I think uh, when I started at, um, at IAB in the, in the height of the pandemic, it was all about flexibility, the ability to either press pause because you didn't like the environment in which you were advertising, move dollars from one place to the other. You know, the, the direct to consumer advertisers, the, the long tail, if you will, um, have gotten this figured out um, far better or far quicker than, let's say, the top 200 advertisers. The, the, the ones that are kind of not making commitments, they're putting the money exactly where things are driving business results and moving dollars kind of daily or many times a day is very different than the dynamic in kind of long-term commitments. I think that the we have already seen upfront commitments are not just on buying X on this network or, or Y on that network. It's the ability to move dollars within a media house or a marketing house, uh, which I think is becoming much more the norm. Right. Yeah. And I mean, flexibility, as you mentioned, big buzzword in 2020, it's been big buzzword all over again in 2022, I expect to be the case in 2023. Like given, you know, this, you know, trend or, you know, expected, you know, trend around reforecasting frequency, um, reforecasting becoming more frequent in 2023, the flexibility conversation really, you know, rearing its head back uh, in the back half of 2022. What does this indicate as the role of the upfront moving forward? Like that's been a big question since 20, predates 2020, but like, especially since 2020. And with this year, again, like upfront commitments changing by the time orders were placed, where advertisers pulled back, looking for greater cancellation options. It just feels like that question of what's the point of the upfront 
um, going forward um, just feels you know requisite question. You know that's a question that's been uh, that's been asked many many times before. I think that there's two answers. Uh, n- number one, we still live in a world that in some areas there is scarcity. So if you don't buy it now or at a certain point in time, it won't be available when you want to buy it. So, and there's things that, you know, sports, live events, um, there's definitely a lot of examples of where that's true. Um, The the other thing that the upfront uh, allows you to do is, the upfront is all about mixing and matching. You get the good stuff and a little bit of the bad stuff and you kind of get an optimal mix for individual clients. If you're later to the market, that mix could be degraded, unavailable, um, so it's all it's all about scarcity. It's if you don't act now, uh, what you are trying to deliver in the market might not be available uh, to deliver. Now, uh, there are also things that are introduced uh, during that time frame, the, the upfronts, new fronts time frame, that are only available for a limited um, strata of advertisers. So we're going to introduce a new ad format and we're going to av- allow it to happen for the 20 advertisers. So you'd want to make a commitment to be able to do that, uh, to try something new. Uh, there's all sorts of things that we haven't talked about in terms of data matching, clean rooms, technology integrations. All of those things take time and resources on both sides that, you know, you need to be able to make a commitment to that company at a, at a dollar amount uh, in order to kind of make that investment warranted. So I think that that's another area that we've seen over the past couple of years. It's beyond spots and dots, driving down cost year on year. It's about integrations. It's about one of the things that you talk about in planning is we spend an inordinate amount of time developing these custom targets. And then you go to the market and you buy adults 18 to 49 or you buy 25 to 54. That's a a gross uh, injustice uh, to the marketplace. So you want to be able to buy the audiences that you've created and you want to be able to guarantee against those. That takes... um, data integrations, technology integrations. Uh, everybody is in that game now, but you only do that for your most uh, meaningful customers. Got it. Another thing we haven't talked about yet is the economic downturn and the impact of that on the advertising market, really the advertising economy. Um, given you know this you know downturn, um, the expectation that it'll worsen next year, What's the role of the IAB at the moment? How are you? What are you all doing um, with respect to your members in light of the advertising slowdown at the moment? So I, I, I think that there's a um, a definite self fulfilling prophecy around um, around this topic. You know, if we believe that things are going to get worse, we stop spending, we pump the brakes, we reel it back, we cut our budgets then next year will be worse. I think that, you know, actually today, uh, most of the major holding companies released their updated forecasts for next year. Um, The survey that you were referring to where we polled uh, brands and agencies, there was about 220 or so brands and agencies. We came up with in our survey, next year will be up 5.9%. You'll see that all the the established pundits came out with something between 3 and 6% in the U.S. uh, all up. Um, so we're we're right in the kind of uh, the center of that. Uh, our, our goal is to is to be fact based, to not buy into the hype, 
to add a dose of reality to the conversation, which is uh, what we've tried to do with the the latest kind of uh, research re re review that we that we published. As you saw, it's not rosy everywhere. Uh, there are there are areas of the industry that are going to continue double digit growth. CTV is an example. There are areas that are going to decline, um, and I think that that is. Um, that is true of uh, some of the linear television channels, some of the other traditional channels. So uh, it, it's a it's kind of mixed bag. But in aggregate, we're going to see um, you know six percent about growth in the U.S. The thing that is hard to wrap your head around is that we've become accustomed to in the digital space over two decades significant double digit year on year growth. So there is no doubt that there will be a slowing of growth. But we're optimistic that we're going to continue to see growth in uh, in 2023. Yeah, yeah. One thing that surprised me was so CTV, as you mentioned, is growing. It's it's the biggest channel. Um, it's the channel that's forecasted to see the most growth next year, up 14 percent in 2023 compared to 2022. But even that is down from 39% forecasted growth for 2022 compared to 2021. What, you know, surprises me about that, not so much like the economic downturn and to what extent that's reflective of, you know, an advertising slowdown, but that, that going from 39% forecasted growth in 2022 to 14% forecasted growth in 2023 is 2023 will be the first full year in which Netflix is in market with an advertising product, first full year in which Disney Plus is in market with an advertising product. There's the growth that has been going on with, you know, at Paramount with Pluto in particular. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is going to do the HBO Max Discovery Plus omnibus streaming service that I think CNBC is reporting today is going to be called Max. We can set that aside because I have thoughts on that naming. But it just feels like there's going to be all this new or expanded inventory for CTV next year and that I would have expected the uh, delta between that forecasted growth in 2023 versus 2022 to be tighter, that it would be higher than 14% forecasted growth. Yeah, I mean, you know, I that's not an outlandish guess. Uh, I, I think the thing that you're not um, calculating as part of that um, that view is the the um, the ad loads that are being introduced into the market are in the CTV space, in the streaming space, in the areas that you've just mentioned are far far lower than either they have been historically or certainly lower than they are in linear television. So this is all a this is all a business equation, right? You could in terms of consumer usage, there's no doubt that the growth will be there. It's a question of how much uh advertising will the consumer support. Um in the either a hybrid model or a fully ad supported model, and I think everyone's still trying to figure their way out there. What we don't want to do is we don't want to create an environment where there's 16 or 17 minutes of ads an hour, which is clearly not going to be a uh, you know a, a, a successful solution in the CTV space. So that's the that's the um, that's the thing that we don't really quite have a, a good handle on. People will be able to ratchet that up and down based on business economics. Um, so, but I understand your 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 point. It one would think it could be slightly higher than 14 percent, but I think 14 percent growth on already a pretty substantial base is not uh, is not bad. 
Yeah, I, I guess it's it's more like a 14% growth number indicates to me a point of maturation. Like, I mean, you know, Definitely Google, not. Meta, you know, Netflix on the subscription side, like they all saw huge growth early on. And then as they got older, as they got more mature businesses, their growth kind of slowed where they're still growing and still growing at like a pretty large scale, but not at the same point. And I just, I guess I just wasn't expecting that to be the case for CTV in 2023 already. Well, well, we have this conversation in six months from now. Um, God willing, I'll come back and you'll and say, you know what, Tim, you are absolutely right. It's more like 20% or 24%. So, I mean, all, all we're doing is reporting what we're hearing from the marketplace. Um, this is what buyers are intending to, uh, to spend uh, in 2023. And we'll see how the, how the industry fares out. Got it. Speaking of you know things we'll see next year and need to check back with you on. Any other you know big trends or developments that you at the IB are all you know tracking pretty closely for 2023 or that you have set as priorities for 2023? You know, kind of the you know th- whatever will be the theme of the annual leadership meeting and kind of that tone it sets for the rest of the year. Yep. Uh the the one area that we haven't even touched on, which is kind of refreshing, actually, to be uh, this far along in the podcast and not talk about, uh, is the changing dynamics in the uh, privacy and regulatory space. Um, I, I think probably um, in no other time are we being faced with as challenging an environment to be compliant with the law as we are getting into in 2023. So as you know, five state laws come into effect next year. We have federal or national privacy legislation, which made some significant headway um, in the past six months, but is stalled and we don't anticipate it's going to be moving forward in the lame duck um, period. So we'll have to take it up again uh, in the next Congress. But that's the that's the big, I mean, I would say that's probably the number one uh, educational effort that we have uh, been conducting this year. And we'll, con- and we'll continue next year. It's just to educate folks on what is changing, what are the dynamics, what constitutes a sale, what constitutes a, you know, what is legal and illegal in the current paradigm, and how do you become compliant? Uh, we introduced um, uh, a couple of days ago uh, a multi-state privacy agreement, MSPA, to the industry, um, which just saddle down with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and read that document when you have some spare time. It becomes compliant with um, the laws that are on the books for next year. We have the global privacy platform, the Tech Lab left uh, released, which is a signaling mechanism, which is able to read kind of the U.S. privacy signals and TCF and others. Uh, so that's the that's the big. I wouldn't say it's the elephant in the room or the gorilla in the room. Everyone should be aware of that. I would say that you know. As with many things in this industry, we're squarely focused on everything until we have to be squarely focused on something. Um, and I would say we're trying to beat the drum at ALM. As you suggested, this will be a big focus. How do you? How do we think about uh, privacy as it currently stands? What can we learn from what's happening in uh, Europe and in other jurisdictions? And what do you need to be uh, to not, you know, be another uh, Sephora as an example with a one point two million dollar fine? How do you become compliant with the law. I would say um, that's probably the the number one thing that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. And with the multi-state privacy agreement, so that for anyone in the audience who isn't familiar, that's 
effectively like the heir to the limited service provider agreement that the IAB had rolled out in late 2019 or in 2019 ahead of the California Consumer Privacy Act taking effect on January 1st, 2020. Um, But the MSPA, as its name implies, multi-state, is meant to help advertisers, publishers, others get kind of... um, contractual, you know, language in order to com- for their dealings with ad tech companies and others, basically vendors to comply with, you know, is this a service provider? Is it a, I think contractor is the new term that's uh, California Privacy Rights Act, which amends the CCPA, introduces that takes effect January 1st. But I think a big question anytime there's, you know, kind of an industry framework, especially given what's happened with the transparency and consent framework in Europe is, well, what do the regulators feel about this? Have they signed off on this? With the MSPA, does this have the blessing of the regulators in, in California specifically? It has been created in consultation with the industry, including uh, the regulators. I, I can't speak on behalf of, uh, of them, uh, but we're obviously intending on bringing something to the market that gives all indications that will be satisfactory to uh, all the regulatory bodies. And as you mentioned, like the privacy landscape, even just in the U.S., is getting really complicated. We'll have a video coming out on CPRA um, later this month, I'll say, where I talk to some lawyers, some ad tech execs, um, and others, privacy experts, about CPRA and kind of its implications. And kind of across the board, it sounds like CPRA while it clarifies some things like the definition of sale under CCPA, which was a big question mark that got Sephora caught in the crosshairs of regulators, in other ways, it complicates the landscape even more. What effect do you see that having on the advertising marketplace? You mean the the, the CPRA taking effect? Well, like ahead of CCPA, I remember talking to a lot of agency execs, you know, specifically who said, oh, we have clients who are going to get a lot more cautious. They're going to go kind of full contextual in early 2020 ahead of CCPA taking effect because there are too many question marks still and, and folks don't want to get caught in the crosshairs. Obviously, CCPA took effect and then soon thereafter, there was a pandemic and CCPA didn't really get enforced Um notably until this year. And so I think, you know, to what extent that CCPA had an effect on the market um, got clouded. CPRA's effect on the market feels like it could be a bit clearer. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm going to, I'll take the glass half full uh, approach for for the moment. Every every indication, and as you you just suggested, sale and shares uh, and the way that they're being uh, defined very, very broadly affects everything, affects measurement, affects frequency capping, affects contextual, it affects every part of the ecosystem. So we're hopeful that the industry will sit up and pay attention, will sign the MSPA or the LSPA kind of um, kind of uh, successor, uh, and that we will kind of all be educated and, and it won't put a, uh, a crimp or a dent in the kind of spend uh, spending uh, that we're that we're projecting. Uh, I guess we'll just have to see how that works. We're, we don't see any indication that folks are going to stop spending as a result of CPRA, as an example. So, in short, it seems like the theme of this conversation is 2023. We'll see how it goes. Well, no, I mean, listen, uh, I would say the past three years, for us as a species and for us as an industry, we have been 
absolutely resilient. Uh, I think, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Our largest growth as an industry in the past decade, 15 years, I think, happened during the pandemic. So at some point, gravity needs to take over. At some point, there needs to be some slowdown. At some point, as you know, Tim, within our career lifetimes, digital will be everything. We will not have the line of demarcation between what is digital and what isn't. It will be the de facto way that entertainment and services are delivered. But at the moment, um, the takeaway shouldn't be, we'll see how it goes. The takeaway should be, we're optimistic about 2023. Uh, in light of uh, economic uncertainty, in light of challenges around the globe, war in Ukraine, supply chain issues still, uh, we remain optimistic. And we're gonna do everything we can at IB um, to help us achieve that optimism. Got it. Let's end on a note of optimism. David Cohen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Tim. And thank you for listening to the Digiday podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode.